Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were recorded in front of a live audience on August 15th, 2019 at the Salt Pond Visitor Center Amphitheater in East Ham, Massachusetts. The theme was Mother Nature. The first story tonight is Mike Barth. Let's give a big round of applause. This is maybe a little offbeat, Mother Nature, but uh, Mother Nature, in doing its work, uh, created two uh, baby boys who grew up and in 1986 were young men with their families, me, Mike, and my brother-in-law and buddy Steve, who's over there, and uh, we were on the Cape, uh, having started to come here in 1982. Uh, This was 1986, and I had a bad back and we went for a bike ride, and uh, today was 2019, and every summer since, 2000, uh, since 1986, we've done the same bike ride. And that has made us feel really good and close about this, so I'm gonna tell you about that. The first time we did the bike ride was kinda unique because I had this back problem. We were staying in a rental house in Brewster, and we biked to Chatham. We got to Chatham and my bike, my back was hurting and I had to find some ice and we also needed a pickup because we decided we were gonna have a somewhat alcoholic lunch at a place called the Chatham Squire, which you may have heard of. And um, the, so Steve uh, decided he had to get a message to our wives, Marilyn and Diane, who are with us tonight. And uh, he went off on his bike because they were going to go to some place called Pam Black's Pottery and left a written message for them to tell them we would be at the Chatham Squire uh, drinking our lunch. And I went out and looked for some frozen peas to put in, inside my bike shorts uh, to help my back. And uh, so Steve uh, event ultimately came back. We went to the, left the note for them, and we went to the Chatham Squire and the best uh, thing for a uh, hurting back, uh, maybe various sophisticated things, but if you have a few beers, that doesn't hurt at all. So that's what we did. And I was sitting there with these frozen peas inside my bike shorts, and uh, somebody walked by and we heard him say, did you see that guy has frozen peas in his bike shorts? And we did. Uh, so then, we had you know, a few more beers and, and lunch, and Marilyn and Diane came and picked us up, and that was uh, the beginning of a tradition. And as our kids got older and old enough to come with us and sit at a bar, we started to take them. And uh, the big deal for them was they could have all the Cokes they wanted. And so they would just sit there and drink Cokes and have a sandwich with us. And then ultimately, the whole family Uh, started to come meet us at the Chatham Squire, and we would often uh, move from the bar to a table and go there. So as I said, we did this ride today. We stop at four different places on the way from Brewster to the Squire, usually about 25 miles, and then we have lunch. 
and we did that today. So that's 33 years of a wonderful thing that has involved our family and what I call human nature. Thank you. Paolo DeMaria. I'm Paolo DeMaria, great to be with you. Um, Mother Nature has blessed us with so many wonderful treasures, uh, not the least of which is this beautiful place that we're sitting today. And our family had a desire to experience some additional treasures in Ireland, uh, including the many wonderful national parks. I don't know if any of you have been to Ireland and visited the national parks, but they are spectacular. And so this has been a long desire of our family. And my wife and daughter finally came about to planning in great detail a wonderful, wonderful trip to Ireland for all of us. And um, it included uh, visits to a number of seaside um, towns and cities, as well as many of the national parks. And little did we know that in addition to the great beauty that we were about to experience, we would also experience the fierce destructive power of Mother Nature as well. We arrived in Dublin Airport on a beautiful day. We rented a car, we got into the car, and I had the good fortune of not having to do anything. I did, was not involved in the planning. I was not involved in the driving. I was not involved in making any of the hotel arrangements. I provided some of the financial underwriting of the adventure that was about to take place, but I was happy to do that because I had no other responsibilities, and that's the way I liked it. And so we began from Dublin Airport to drive in a southwesterly direction through a series of small towns, and interspersed among those small towns were just these marvelous um, treasures of nature. Uh, Killarney National Park, uh, the Wicklow Mountains, uh, the Cliffs of Moher, the Burren, um, the, uh, the Connemara Peninsula. Uh, one after the other, just wonderful, unique, uh, diverse ecosystems, each with its own background and, and beauty, um, and, and just uh, uh, filling us with the joy of experiencing nature uh, in this land, which my wife's maiden name is Moran, so she had Irish heritage, and, and she was uh, loving every minute of it, as were my uh, two children. About four days in, however, we started you know, listening uh, more intently to the radio in our car, uh, and there began to be discussions about a hurricane forming in the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and I turned to my itinerary, flipping through the pages, and I said, hey, um, there is no reference on this itinerary to a hurricane. Um, and uh, having lived in Charleston, South Carolina, and having family in Pensacola, Florida, I kind of knew hurricanes were not something to trifle with. And uh, so it began to strike us that perhaps this may alter our well-laid plans, and we began to sort of contemplate what we might do without necessarily departing from our set plans. Because after all, you know, normalcy is is a, is a, a is an attribute; it's a gift. And we decided we'd just stick with the plan until such time as we had to make different decisions. And so, sure enough, we continued down our journey, and we found our place uh, ourselves in Westport in a convent uh, the the night when the hurricane was to make landfall. And the following day, we were destined for, my wife had always wanted to stay in a lighthouse, in a lighthouse in Ireland as part of her adventure. So she, in fact, had booked us to stay in Fanned Head Lighthouse, the very northwestern tip of Ireland. And sure enough, it happened that that would be the day when the hurricane was going to hit. Now, I, being uh, one who said, you know, that natural tendency is to go inland when the hurricanes come, not to rush to the shore, um, I, I raised a few questions, but Throughout the most of this trip, I was ignored. My ideas were sort of dismissed outright. Um, and so I, I suggested, you know, I just sat back and said, 
things will happen. You have to put your faith in nature that uh, things will happen well. And so are, are we agreed the night we went to sleep in Westport that we would evaluate the circumstances the next day and figure out what the right course of action would be. Um, and so sure enough, the, the, the innkeeper had said we could stay an extra day if we didn't want to go. But we, we woke, and the weather was not too bad. It was getting a little windy. Um, and um, I do have to pay due tribute to Met Aaron, which is the National Weather Service, and um, because uh, they gave great reports. The preparedness in Ireland was fantastic. Schools were closed for two days. All appointments for the National Health Service were canceled if they were not emergent. They really, really did a great job. And we saw all the towns, all the fishermen were mooring their boats and so forth and so on and getting things done. But that morning, we took stock and we said, you know what? At the speed at which the hurricane is traveling, we can get to the lighthouse without necessarily it, um, it beating us there. And so we got in our car, we got up bright and early and made a mad dash to the northwestern part and got to our, our uh, lighthouse in time, got all our stuff inside, just as the storm was beginning to land there. And so the rain came and the winds came and the this rock solid lighthouse, we had made actually a pretty good decision because it had weathered many, many years of storms there on the coast. And um, and we enjoyed it. And at one point, we sent our children outside into the into the wind and the rain, so we could take a picture of them through the inside window, <laughs> struggling to you know show us just exactly what kind of terror they were going through. Um, and so, so it came to pass that that night we slept through the hurricane and got up in the morning and things had cleared. 300,000 people were without power. Three people had been killed by virtue of the hurricane. But otherwise, life returned quite to normal uh, in Ireland and our trip continued. And we will always have a great memory of not only the great beauty of Mother Nature, but also a reminder of her great strength. And that's my story. Please come on down, Kristen Knowles. Yes. It's so amazing to be standing here with the sun right there and the salt pond. And I mean, I grew up here. Um, my grandfather, Knowles, was born right across the street. And um, it's just really wonderful to be here before you in this gorgeous place. Um, my story starts in New Hampshire, which is where I was born, which technically makes me a wash ashore. I'll admit it. <clears throat> um, and my years in New Hampshire were not anything to look back on with much fondness. However, the one thing I loved so much about New Hampshire was the orchards, the apples. And it's almost apple season right now. And it's like you can smell it in the air. It's that, you know, everything's just starting to, to go towards, you know, dying back. And um, it's the sort of sweetness. And it, you know, it harkens uh, the coming of fall. Um, and that's a very special place for me when I, uh, any time that I go apple picking. So um, when I was in my, when we left there and we moved to the Cape full time finally. Um, and this is where my dad grew up and this is home. And um, New Hampshire never felt like home. Um, but so when I was in my early 20s, um, I was studying um, theology uh, as a just a side thing, and I was learning about different types of belief systems. And um, I stumbled upon the book, The Mists of Avalon. And since I had been raised um, Catholic, I didn't know anything about the pre-Christian history of the British Isles, which is primarily my heritage. 
So um, I started learning about it. And The Mists of Avalon is a book that is about the Arthurian legends as they were told through the eyes of the pagan women of that period. So it talks about when the Roman Empire came and Christianity was being imposed upon the pagans and how that all started so much turmoil. And um, there, is, there was an island called Avalon. And Avalon means apple land. And the apples on the island of Avalon were supposed to grant you wisdom and immortality and vision. You could tell if someone was lying. Things like that, you know, just an exceptionary vision, metaphysical connection. And um, the lady of the lake was the high pagan priestess. And uh, I came to learn also that the symbol of the pentagram, which has been called demonic, is actually not in any way, shape, or form. It is the cross-section of an apple with the five stars. So, um, and that, that whole belief has been inverted to be, if, if the top star is pointed down, then there's two stars pointing, two, two points going this way. And then it's turned on its head to be demonic, but it never has been. So anyway, you know, all these things about apples just stirred me so much because I already had this deep love for them anyway. And um, so, and especially as a Catholic, I was just eating this stuff up. I was like, oh yeah, uh-huh, yeah, there's somebody missing up there and I think her name is the goddess. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and so after that, um, my husband and I got married. We had a pagan hand fasting. He wore a kilt. It was amazing. Um, and then, um, let's see, we started learning about permaculture. And we have this yard in Orleans. It's almost an acre. And we're slowly turning it into a food forest. We have lots of fruit trees. And my husband decided to get um, his uh, graphic, his design certificate in permaculture uh, so that we can continue to grow this food forest in our yard um, and as well start teaching other people about sustainable farming practices. Um, and so anyway, uh, his new thing at the time was apples. All of a sudden, he was like, I'm really into grafting. I want to find all these old types of apples and graft them on to rootstock and you know so we have all these apples in our yard and um, you know meanwhile we had adopted these two children from Kazakhstan and um, people always said why did you why did you adopt these kids from Kazakhstan and I was like well you know I honestly like the funny thing I would say is um, oh well we had just seen the movie Borat and we thought we'd get our own two little Borats Right, <laughs> um, but but the truth was that it was one of the only countries in the world that was still letting Americans adopt. Even Russia was closed to us at that time. And a few months after we got our kids, they closed to the United States as well. Kazakhstan did. So um, anyway, so we went to Kazakhstan, spent a hellish month um, in a 10 degree below zero city came called Petropavlovsk in Western Siberia. And then uh, we had to come home and then you have to fly back to pick up your kids. So when they told us this is where you have to go, you have to go to the city named Almaty. We're like, okay, we look in the travel guide and we, we get our tickets and we go. And so this hotel we're staying in in Almaty 
um, the Kazakhstan Hotel. It's like this big tall tower uh, overlooking these these beautiful mountains and it's sort of in a valley. And And I was in a shop one day and there were these giant apples all stacked up and, and I was like, wow, those are amazing. And this woman said, oh, they're the golden apples that grow wild in the, in the apple forests and the mountains. And I was like, wow, you're kidding me. And anyway, so I'm thinking, that's so cool. And then she says, well, this is, you know, Almaty means city of apples. And I'm like, oh my God, wow, all these connections through my life. So then I go home and we're still growing our own little Avalon over there in Orleans. And um, I was Christmas shopping and I was looking on Amazon for something. And I saw this book and it said, um, apples are from Kazakhstan. And I was like, Hmm, well, what does that mean? I mean, and so I got the book, and it turns out that the genomic DNA lineage of all apples in the world descends from those very mountains that were right outside my hotel window in Kazakhstan when our, our family first came together for the first time. It's amazing. So if you ever have any doubt that there is a grand scheme in order to things, um, have faith and trust. It's there. The next story, come on down, Suzanne Ryan. Hello. Um, I have two stories tonight. They're both very quick. And the title that they both fall under is Protective Parenting in Nature. <laughs> and so the first one um, takes place when I was about 16 years old and I worked in the kitchen of a summer camp. And it was a very hot, crowded uh, place, very busy, three times a day. Everybody was in a bad mood a lot of the time. So what I would do, it was in upstate New York, and what I would do during off time was to walk off into the woods and just do my own thing and chill out and get it all back together. And one day I was in the woods and I was seated on a rock. And um, all of a sudden I was... Um, Something I, I heard something uh, that took me out of my thoughts, and about 30 feet away, there was a buck with uh, beautiful antlers, and he was snorting and looking at me, studying me very closely. And I just looked at him. I had no idea what he was going to do, and he went like this. And seconds later, in the distance, there was a response. And so that happened a couple of more times. And he moved on, watching me very carefully. And into view came this doe and a little baby fawn. And so what was going on was that he was communicating with them to tell them that I was non-threatening and it was okay to walk through. So that's one story. 
The second story, <laughs> um, the second story takes place in Massachusetts. Um, Waltham is a city outside of Boston. There's a bike path there and a park. And about 10 years ago, well, this was a time of year when it was warm and there were lots of Canada geese who had given uh, birth to young little ch cute chicks. And if you look at them, if you look at the chicks, the mama geese go and they, they think you want to eat their babies. So they're ready to fight. So anyway, I was on a walking bike path with my friend Veronica, and we're walking along, and there were geese on either side, and um, up ahead was a human mother, uh, and she was leaning over her baby stroller like this, fussing around, probably diapers or something in there, and somehow, that triggered something in a goose far away. And she just focused her vision on this woman's behind <laughs> and went zooming. And I froze in place. I was like, this is not nice. <laughs> but my friend Veronica is very cool-headed. And she very smoothly went over to the mother and the carriage and gently pushed them out of the way and the goose just went zooming right on ahead. And that's my story. <laughs> Thank you. Give a big warm welcome to Bill, Bill Fuginetti. So you remember a few weeks ago we had a tornado that came here, Cape Cod? This is not about that. Because what bothered me about that was on the news it said, well, a tornado touched down in South Yarmouth and Harwich. And we live in Dennis, and I know it came through Dennis. It's like, what do we, chop liver? This story is about a storm that came to Dennis last year. Um, we had some company. At the time, we owned a camper we had just bought in South Dennis. We also had a condo we, that we hadn't sold yet, so we had two properties in South Dennis. And so we were game for having company down because we got two places and summertime, come on down. So we had Nancy, my girlfriend, her, um, her uh, granddaughter, mom and dad, and some other friends came and stayed at our camper. And um, one, of the, the, one of the guys in that group, Johnny, is a, not a state police officer in New Hampshire, but a, um, an officer in New Hampshire. He's on the SWAT team six foot four, like a real man, okay? <laughs> we have a rainstorm that comes through that night. Maybe it was a Friday night. And um, we stayed at the condo. They were at the camper. I came by the next morning. Oh, boy, it really rained last night, huh? And at the time, we had a bunch of oak trees hanging over. And so the acorns were pelting the aluminum roof of our camper and the porch where they were staying on the futon. And I said, geez, I hope it wasn't that bad. And Johnny goes, I'd never been so scared in my life. <laughs> And it's a guy, and it's a police officer, okay? So ho hold on to that thought. Okay, so I said, well, at least, you know, Saturday morning, it looks pretty nice out. Everybody's going to the beach. So they get dropped off by Jared. He's going to the airport to pick up his brother, Colt, and Nancy's sons. And um, so the baby, uh, Katie, Johnny, and Kaylee go to the beach. 
Mayflower Beach. They've been dropped off. They have no car. What could go wrong? Okay, so being a good neighbor, when at my uh, condo, my neighbor's got all these cardboard boxes. She's over by the um, the dumpster, and I said, "Oh, don't throw those out. I'm, you know, good liberal. I'll, I'll take those to the dump and recycle them." And so I load up my Honda CRV with all those cardboard boxes, not a square inch, not an inch to spare. And then it starts to rain, and then it starts to thunder and lightning, and I'm at the dump. What could go wrong? Surrounded by metal bins of recycling, and I see the lightning crackling as close as I've ever seen it in my life. And it's pouring rain. And I know it's gonna be the same thing at the beach, and they're at the beach, they're the worst place you could be. So I'm hustling, right? I go, I gotta go pick those guys up. I don't have to pick them up. As I'm running, dropping off all the cardboard boxes, my phone falls out of my pocket. And I don't realize it, because it's crazy. And people are running around left and right. And so I get back in the car, I go, all right, I clean up my car, I'm gonna go get them at, at the beach. And I go, well, let me give them a call. You know, they must be calling me, saying what's going on, where's my phone? I can't find it, it's not in my pocket. I lose stuff, you know, all the time. You ever wanna lose something, give it to me, I would say. <laughs> I'm looking on the seat, I'm looking here, I'm looking here, I cannot find it, but I've gotta get to the beach, cause I know they have to be kind of rescued from the beach. So I get there and thankfully, um, they had cleared the beach because they had a baby. They talked themselves into getting into the lifeguard uh, quarters and they were safe. And I saw Johnny, the police officer from New Hampshire, and I said, how was it here? He goes, I've never been so scared in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so I pick everybody up and through it all, little Charlotte, who's probably about two months old at the time, slept through the whole thing. So ignorance is bliss, and Mother Nature is mean. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so let's welcome William to the stage. So um, when my brother and I graduated high school years and years ago, my uncle gave us an amazing gift. It was a trip a two-week whitewater rafting trip down the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon. It was spectacular. And this was one of these trips where you didn't have to do anything. You had these guides who could cook, um, drive, uh, drive the rafts, and even um, put up your tent. You just sat back and enjoyed the view. And the people, um, the group on our tour were from all over the world. We had these two guys from Germany who spoke very little English, and back then I called them Hans and Franz from the SNL sketch. And they were an odd bunch. They would see this amazing, spectacular views and start giggling like two little schoolgirls on a, on a field trip. And I, it was odd to me because I never found nature humorous. Like you don't look at something and it's like, that, is, that sunset is cracking me up. <laughs> but there they were. But I, I guess that's just how they express their amazement. Um, there were also uh, some people from all over the United States, from Virginia, Florida, and we, my cousin and my brother and I met this girl and her family from Arizona who had never been to the Grand Canyon, which I also felt was very odd. That was like being brought up in New York City and never going to the Empire State Building. 
But there they were. We were all excited. Now, we're going down the rapids, and every day we would have a side trip. So one day, there was this excitement about a side trip where we'd be hiking along a tributary that goes into the um, Colorado River to these falls called the Navajo Falls. And where was this tributary would actually, uh, from the rim of the canyon, be um, falling down hundreds of feet, and it's just a visual that you cannot miss. So we're very excited. So we started on our way along this little trickling stream, and um, some people who didn't want to do the hike could stay in these natural pools and, and eat their lunch. And, but I was like, I'm going to see the Navajo Falls. And all of us, were ready. So we're going with our guide. And we start to see this spectacular cloud formation. And we stop. And Hans and Franz start giggling. <laughs> and um, we start taking photos. But the guide isn't like, he looks worried. And we're like, it's a cloud. So we continue on. And then we see this amazing rainbow. And we see these sheets of rain off in the distance, like someone is shaking a salt shaker in slow motion. And Hans and Franz, at this point, were on the ground, like belly laughing. And we're like, this is amazing. But our guy goes, not good. This isn't good. We're like, it's a rainbow. Who doesn't like rainbows? What sick person doesn't like a rainbow? And so he explained to us that rainbows in the desert were a sign of danger because in the distance, that rainstorm could turn into a flash flood. So to everyone's disappointment, he wanted to be safe and, uh, and not sorry. So we turned around, and we were going to go back to these nice little pools, eat lunch, and wait it out. And we were all disappointed. And I knew nothing about nature at that, at that point except the fact that I hated spiders. And I was convinced that there were spiders in the desert southwest, poisonous ones at every turn. Like the whole trip, I was like, that's a spider. And everyone's like, that's a pebble. I'm like, that's a spider. That's the stick. I'm like, there's a spider. I'm like, that's a person. And I'm like, okay. So, so we get back to these pools and we go to have lunch. And my cousin and my brother and I are like, let's go to the coolest place. And we find this rock outcrop. And we shimmy up it, and it had a great view, and the tributary had this like little drop off of 20 or 30 feet. We start eating lunch, and then the Arizona girl was like, was like I want to join you. And she, we help her up onto this rock outcrop, and we're eating lunch. And then all of a sudden, we hear someone say uh, in, in, uh, upstream, get out of the water, get out of the water. My cousin immediately jumps off the rock outcrop through the, through the stream to, to the um, edge of the stream. I, I'm deer in the headlights. Arizona girls, deer in the headlights. And I'm like, did I hear that correctly? Was he asking for a bottle of water? Or, and, she, and Arizona girls looking at me like I should know something about what to do. And before you know it, we both look and there's a 10 foot wall of water crashing into this rock outcrop. Now luckily we are high enough up so the water's going around it. But unfortunately, there were people caught in it, and they were passing by. Now, there's, there were three things that I remember about the water first reaching us. One was the smell. It hit you. It smelled like a sewer, like rotten eggs. Two was the sound. I have never to this day heard anything louder. 
it shook your brain. And then three, the wind. It was so powerful, this gust of wind almost blew Arizona Girl and I off the rock outcrop. So we're standing there, and, and we don't know what to do, and we're, we're just lucky that we're high enough up. But then the water's deep. It, it, it becomes deeper and deeper, and then hits our ankles, our thighs. And we're like, we, we look on the, on, on the stream bed, and we're like, what are we going to do? And the guide points to these two sickly, spiny trees that are growing out of this soil deposit. They come out of the, they look like, like little willow trees. And they're like, climb them. I'm like, what? <laughs> so Arizona girl and I, we climb up there. And that's, that's when it, we're, we're shaking back and forth. And that's when I know. I'm like, this is, this is going to be death. <laughs> this is death. Like, these are not going to hold us, and we're going to crash into the rushing water, go out and drown into the Colorado River. And we're going back and forth, and all of a sudden I hear Arizona girl yell something to me. And she's like, William, William. I was like, what? She's like, do you accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior? <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> what? Do you accept Jesus Christ as your savior? I said, what are you talking about? She said, if you don't, you're gonna go to hell instead of heaven. I said, I don't wanna go to either place, I wanna stay here. <laughs> she said, you need to repent, you need to repent now. And I, I in, in the moment I said, I thought about the spiders that this flood must be taking. And I said, shut up. There are thousands of spiders being brought, and they're climbing up this tree. I know it. <laughs> and so she did shut up. I felt bad. And she bowed her head. And you can tell she was talking to God, apologizing to God that she couldn't save this one. <laughs> we closed our eyes, which felt like hours. And then we opened them because a guide was yelling at us, and we looked, and the water had receded. And the guide was throwing us a line to tie to these little sickly trees. And we did. And to get down to the water, even though it was receding, it was still so powerful. We would hold on the line, and it would t take our body out like this, like we were little mini flags on a flagpole. And we finally got down to safety. And... Arizona girl did not talk to us the rest of the trip. And I, I actually heard her say to her mother, he's not a Christian mother. He's not a Christian. And, um, and as for Hans and Franz, they did not speak or laugh the entire trip, the rest of the trip. And they, just like us, realized the power of mother nature was nothing to laugh at. Thank you. Please welcome to the stage, Jerry Lorenzo Miller. Jerry. Hi, um, I just wanna get a show of hands if anybody knows that establishing shot for that TV show, Full House. Full House, okay. Okay, so that was in a, a park called Almo Square Park and they had the painted ladies and the Victorians behind them. And then you had the San Francisco backdrop, the skyline, and water, the bay, and then Oakland. Anybody remember who was, baseball fans, anybody remember who was in the 89 World Series? Oakland. 
Oakland and San Francisco, that game was going to start at 5.35, right? Now, I'm playing basketball in the panhandle north of the hate in the panhandle. And at 5.04, someone put a shot up. And we went for the rebound. And it went like this. Hey, 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 wait a minute. It's an earthquake. It's a big one. And I'm telling you, if you threw a rock in that pool over there, a, make it a brick, and you saw the waves radiate out from there, that's what we were standing on or trying to stand on. And that's what this, the pavement, all the pavement looked like. It went waves everywhere. The pixel trees shaking, leaves are coming down. When it was over, we were, why is that not potato chips? You know, <laughs> that's, that's was gone. So we stopped and horns, cars were driving on this thing too. So cars are stopping, they're blowing horns. So the ground's going, then it stops. The building's trying to adjust themselves. You hear all the windows pss, 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 all over the place. And we're looking around and the ground's back to normal and the leaves are coming down. We look around and the cars have started going back. And we go, okay, what's the score? <laughs> you know, we wanted to play basketball. That lasted about three minutes. And all of a sudden, everybody was like, yeah, I feel kind of weird. Yeah, I feel weird too. So I leave. Now, that park is about 10 blocks away from where I lived on Elmo Square Park. And there's this electric bus. Most of the buses were electric. We're going to 21 McAllister. Every time I've been there, and I've moved there with my girlfriend from San Francisco. We moved there earlier that summer. Every time I went to that bus after basketball, it was down there and I always missed it. I run up the street, and there it is on the corner, the door open. I'm like, wow, I'm going to make it. I jump on the bus. I give the show the guy my, uh, my, my Charlie card here, but you know there was a Muni pass there. And he goes, hey, I don't know where you're going. I said, what's wrong? We're going. I said, first of all, I don't have any electricity. And then he says, look there. I look down McAllister Street. Facades of buildings have crumbled over the sidewalk, on top of cars, all the way down. It's like, oh my god, it's a really bad one. So I run the 10 blocks home, because my girlfriend's at work. Hopefully, she's home from work. She worked downtown in Union Square near the Powell Street BART station under a 20-foot by 20-foot plate glass window at a little cafe. So I get home, and I see my friends who've moved there with us from, from Provincetown. And oh, no, Catherine's not here. I'm like, oh my god. She's still down there three and a half miles away. I ran the whole way, three and a half miles. I get down there, the plate glass is fine, and now it's dark, and now it's 5.30 or 6. Now all these people that were in these office buildings want to go home to Oakland, Berkeley, East Bay. The Bay Bridge is down, it collapsed. BART's gone, there's no electricity. So they had to get line up diesel buses all on Market Street, and all these people are lined up four blocks away, and then take them all the way down close to San Jose and bring them out to Oakland. Now, I'm tired. I don't want to run back home. And I don't want to stand in the four-block line. So I see the first diesel bus, and I just jump on like Spider-Man on the back. <laughs> and I'm hanging on for dear life. I'm going to take this three miles up to Market Street, up to Castro, and I live off of Divisadero. I'm riding down. Some guy on a motorcycle comes by and goes, hey, it's Spidey. I said, God, if you only knew. <laughs> but I just kept on going. I get off the, get off the, get off the bus. It slowed down. I stopped. I go back to Alamo Square, go back to the place. 
I was my girlfriend. Oh my God, Nikki, are you okay? How was it? I'm like, God, it was crazy, blasey, blasey. We all go up to everybody's meeting up Alamo Square Park up there. And up in the north, you can see this red glow in the marina. That's where that fire was going on. Now, I remember that establishing shot for Full House. Now, if you can imagine this, we're standing there. There is no electricity, no lights coming from any houses. The only lights were coming from cars on the streets. With zero traffic accidents that night after the earthquake. So that's all the light we had. So we're standing in this park, and we got the establishing shot. You got Coit Tower, you got the Trans-America Pyramid, Bank of America building, the rest of it. It could have been all in one black cutout, no death, because Oakland had lights. So the silhouette of this escape from New York looking insane. Like, wow, this is crazy. So we didn't know what to do. There's no radio, no cell phones, no contact, anything. We don't know what's going on. So we go to Haight Street, and of course, hey, we got candles, and hey, the beer's getting warm. You got to come on in. So we went in, we went out. Got up the next day and realized how bad it was. 63 people died, almost 4,000 people injured, and all kinds of buildings were uh, disrupted and, and torn apart. And um, people started going through trauma. And the state government started supplying um, therapists and counselors for, for helping people with PTSD. And uh, people were starting to get together. I ended up turning 22 at the end of that month. And then uh, about the middle of that fall, that town really came together and love and unity and comfort for everyone. And, Sure enough, nine months later, at the University of California, San Francisco Hospital, my first and only child was born, my son Jordan. And I was just, he just turned 29 a little while ago. And I was talking to a friend of mine about him, and I have to say, he is probably one of the better human beings I've ever known, and a true blessing to my life, and thank God for Mother Nature. <laughs> All right, come on down, Nancy McGrath. Well, I'm Nancy, and um, in 2007 um, to 2009, I took some classes to be a shaman. And in 2009, uh, the 10 people I took the classes with all had a trip to Peru. But at the last minute, um, one of the people couldn't go. I wasn't going to go because it was um, expensive and I didn't have the money. So they gave me a scholarship to go, so I got to go to Peru for free. And um, the trip to Peru, it was a sightseeing trip, but it was also um, a trip that you went with 10 other shaman that were from Peru. And so us 10 shaman met up with those 10 shaman, and we went all over Peru um, doing ceremonies. So, of course, the biggest thing to do in Peru is to go to Machu Picchu. And um, I was lucky enough to get to go to Machu Picchu. But um, on the day we were supposed to go to Machu Picchu, uh, the people told us, well, the night before, the shaman said, when we go to Machu Picchu, you have to get up at 5.30 in the morning. And I was like, what kind of a place opens at 5.30 in the morning? But we were staying this town called Oleantambo, and it's probably an hour bus ride. So you have to get up at 5.30 to get on the bus, is what they said. 
So we all get up at 5.30, we run to the bus, and the whole purpose of this getting up so early is so that you can be on the first bus to Machu Picchu. I don't know what the deal is with that. So we get on the bus, we go to Machu Picchu, and we get there at like 7 in the morning, right when they're opening the gates. And we, we, you have to go through like a backpack check and everything. So we get through the backpack check. And then the shaman all starts saying, run. And I'm like, run? So we're running on this pathway that's made out of dirt. And all the beautiful buildings that you always see in pictures of Machu Picchu are all there. All the rocks, the moss, the fog. And we're running through. And I'm saying, why are we running through Machu Picchu? And no one will answer us. We run all the way through Machu Picchu. Um, and they really would not let us stop. And we get to the other side, and there's a little gate there. And there's a Peruvian man there, and he has a little clicker. And you, we ran through Machu Picchu in order to get to that gate. And every day, they only let 250 people go through that gate. So there is another mountain next to Machu Picchu, which is called Picchu, And the shaman are um, not allowed to perform ceremonies at Machu Picchu, because I think they think it might scare away tourists. I don't know. So our whole mission was to get to Wanapichu, and I was like, I really wanted to see Machu Picchu, <laughs> but <laughs> it was okay. So we went um, to Wanapichu, um, and it's really a remote mountain. There's just this dirt path, and you walk along this dirt path halfway up the mountain, kind of very precarious, and we were walking on a pretty steep incline. It's pretty high altitude, so you have to walk kind of slow because you get out of breath. And we had to walk all the way around to the backside of Wanapichu, and we were going to a place called the Cave of the Moon, which um, I've never heard of. I don't know if anybody's really ever heard of it, but it is a very, very ancient cave that shaman visit. And inside the cave, um, it's a cave that's probably I'd say as big as this amphitheater, so quite a few people can fit in there. And there's these little niches that are cut inside the cave, and they have these big rocks that are about the size of bowling balls. And these rocks have a lot of history and memory and really good energy. And so at first, we're in the cave, and everyone's saying, well, go pick out a rock and hug the rock. And shaman are really connected with rocks, so I really got this. This was fine. So we're all loving the rocks and touching them all or whatever. And then they say, OK, now we're going to stand in a circle. So I'm relatively tall, and the shaman are relatively this height. And we're standing in the cave, and I'm in the back part of the cave. So the whole opening of the cave is right in front of me, just like this. And we're going to have a ceremony. And I'm like, OK. So we all stand in a circle. We hold hands. And they start saying these prayers. So shaman are very connected with the earth. And a lot of the prayers um, are um, Pachamama. Pachamama is the Mother Earth. And we, they say a lot of prayers for Mother Earth to bring in good energy to your ceremony. So as soon as we hold hands and are in the circle, I feel nauseous. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, 
I'm going to be sick at this ceremony. This is my first big ceremony. I'm going to ruin it. And I'm on the back side of the wall. And I'm thinking, should I let go of people's hands and run right through the circle? And go, what do you do in this situation? There's no one to ask. And I was feeling so weak and sick. And then all of a sudden, the sickness passed. And I just fell to my knees. And I could not get up. I was being sucked to the earth. And my knees were just stuck there. And I was holding on to people's hands. But I was at the same height as all the Peruvians. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that Pachamama just wanted me to be at the level of everyone else. <laughs> so even though um, you know, we talk about the big energy like hurricanes and tornadoes, there's an energy in Pachamama that we can all feel. Thank you. Please welcome Linda. So my heart belongs in two places, here at Cape Cod and in New York on our old farm. And I'm really torn between which one I like better. And maybe you all have a place like that if you're lucky to love two places as deeply as I do. And when I'm here, I'm missing there. And when I'm there, I'm missing here. Uh, but that's how it goes, right? So in my 20s, I went cross country with a girlfriend. And we were out in the desert at night. And it's a sad story because a horse got hit, a wild horse got hit by a car as it got out of the fenced-in area. And um, I did something that was totally irrational. I tried to flag down every car I could and ask if they had a gun because I couldn't stand the sound of this poor horse that had broken its leg. And can you imagine a woman running up to you and saying, do you have a gun? You know, so, so, but that story was pretty traumatic for me and it, it's been with me. And as you know, stories stay with you for a long time. So move forward and I'm on our farm and we are really tired and my husband and I have just laid down to go to sleep and it's probably near midnight. <clears throat> and it's early spring, but I'm anxious to have the windows open as soon as possible because I wanna hear the outside. I can't imagine being anywhere where I can't hear the crickets. And I have to hear them as soon as they start, you know? So the windows are open, the room is cold, we just lay down, and I hear hoofbeats outside the door. And I say, oh my God, the horses have gotten out. Honey, get up. We've got to go get the horses. They've gotten out of the barn. We had two horses. And he's kind of groggy. He doesn't wake up very well. I don't know what we would do if a burglar came in. I guess it would be up to me because, because he wouldn't be able to wake up fast enough. So I'm in a t-shirt. That's all I have on. And my husband's in his boxers. And we live in a rural area. And it's very dark and very black. And you can't see anything. And I run down the street. There are no head there are no lights anywhere. And I'm running after the horses. And my husband's behind me. And he gets maybe 200 feet down the road. And he says, I'm not doing this. Forget this. I'm not doing this. I mean, I drag him along to all these animal things, right? 
And um, so he says, I have no shoes on. I'm freezing cold. I'm going back. And I'm like, don't leave me. Don't leave me. We've got to go catch him. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking of that horse that, that had that accident. So I keep on running, and I probably go a quarter of a mile. I'm not an athlete, but I'm driven by this desire to get these horses back. And I get down the road, and it comes to me, Linda, you can't outrun a horse. What are you thinking? You're never going to catch them. And I get down the road, and I stand there, and I ponder, what will I do next? And I hear them, and they've turned around, and they're coming back towards me. And I think, oh my god, they're going to run me down. They're going to run me right over. It's pitch black. They can't see me. And I hear, <laughs> if anybody knows horses, you know, they get really huffy and really excited. And they're, they're just really like stallions when they're excited. And they come running up towards me. And I have to make myself known. And I say, whoa, baby, whoa, baby, whoa, baby. And I'm trying to talk to them. And I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to do? I don't have a rope. I jumped up out of bed. I don't have any way to catch them. I know enough about horses that if you catch one, you catch them all. But you have to catch one. So I'm now in front of a very famous writer's house. He's very well known. He's written many, many books. And his house is right there. And I say, OK, Linda, you've got to make a choice. It's your pride or the life of that animal. So I did what anyone would do. I ripped off my clothes. And I put them over the horse. And so now the horse, I've caught it. And I bring it into the farm that's right there. And now I'm trespassing. I'm clearly trespassing. <laughs> and I get in 50 feet, and what happens? Motion light comes on. <laughs> Motion light comes on. So now I'm under floodlights. And I thought. I've got to explain myself to these people. If they come out, I'll just explain. That's all. I love horses. And, and you know, I'll just tell them what happened. But, but luckily for me, they were in their New York apartment. So they weren't home that night. I get into the barn, which, again, I'm trespassing because it's a very fancy barn. And I get in, and I, the horses follow me. And um, I take my nightgown back. And I put it on, and I see headlights, so I know that's my husband coming. But the trick of the story is this. They weren't my horses. Uh, we do have another guest storyteller tonight. Uh, his name is Matt Cecil, and he's going to be hosting The Mosquito this coming Tuesday night. His first time hosting, not his first time telling stories. Um, and I just want to uh, invite him up to the stage, and as he makes his way up here to tell his story, <laughs> cue Matt. <laughs> uh, I'd just like to thank Linda for that story and take the lesson away. When in doubt, take your clothes off. <laughs> was, that a, was that a challenge? <laughs> nice. All right. Um, thank you. Um, so I, I just wanted to start off by saying a lot of these stories, a lot of kind of the overarching theme seems to me anyway, um, kind of like this 
um, dichotomy between like the, the beauty of nature, the sereneness of nature, and the kind of like this, this danger or this power. Um, and nowhere uh, kind of emphasizes that more than um, Alaska. I lived in Alaska for 13 years um, and had like, I, I could fill this whole thing with about a thousand different stories about mother nature. Um, but one I will tell you is I actually helped a friend of mine. It's mostly, it made me think about this because the forest service, um, where I lived in Juneau, Alaska is all part of the Tongass national forest, which is the largest national forest in the country. Um, and so there's a very big park presence. Um, glaciers are all, you know, like protected by the national forests and everything else. Um, so this one area, a friend of mine was doing research for um, the state of Alaska and the National Forest Service. And it was on a remote island um, next off of a bigger island, uh, which is part of uh, southeast Alaska, kind of the archipelago of all these just gigantic islands. Um, and the island is on is called Chichikov Island, and it's where Sitka is. I don't know if anyone's ever been on a cruise or anything like that, but um, Sitka's a couple thousand people on it. Um, Chichikov Island is about 2,200 square miles. Um, just to put that in perspective, Rhode Island uh, is about 1,200 square miles. Um, so there's about a couple thousand people that live there, but it's mostly wide open wilderness. Um, the ABCs uh, are the three islands that are Admiralty, Baranoff, and Chichikov Island, and they're the most densely populated brown bear areas in the world. Um, and so my friend was doing research on how the bears interact with these cruise ship passengers that come into these remote areas. So we're not talking about the carnival cruises with the gigantic things with the parties with the slides and all that other stuff. We're talking about small cruise ships like the National Geographic ones that hold like maybe 800 people. And they can go into these smaller areas um, and go on these little side tours. Um, and so one of these things that they do is they go and they do these bear viewing trips, like kind of out in the middle of nowhere where no one is. There's, there's no forest service presence. There's no anything. And so she was studying how people interacted with the bears that were already there. Um, and my friend Cheryl is about, uh, she's about this big. Um, she's about five feet tall. She's been living out on this island all summer and her research assistant needed to go somewhere for a week. So she actually called me on a satellite phone and asked me if I wanted to come out um, and help her do research for a week. And I was like, uh, yeah. Um, so we live on this little island and we took a kayak into Chichikov Island, um, into this little area where there's, um, there's a stream that comes down, the bears feed off the salmon. It's very, you know, like you see it on postcards, it's gorgeous. Um, <laughs> So what we have to do is she has built this platform in the trees uh, right near this kind of like it's, it's like a there's a little waterfall that comes down. Then there's this gorgeous pool and then there's some rocks and then it kind of drops off again. And so the bears like to kind of hang out in here. And also the hiking trail goes right right next to that, too. So we're, we're doing two things. One, we're monitoring when the bears come around and how often they come around and when the people come around and how often they come around and how the two of them interact with each other. Um, which is fun. She had like a little clipboard that said things like, like, ran away scared. And you can check the bear or the people. Um, so stuff like that. It was really fun. So we, so we would sit up in this tree all day, and she had this very large gun that the state of Alaska made her carry, which is about as big as she was. Um, and I just always thought it was about a 30 out 6 So it was like the idea of her, like, it would be like she would, she would pull the trigger if she ever had to, and it would just be like she, she'd be gone. I mean, like, she would, you'd be standing there, and then you'd be, you'd, you wouldn't have a gun or anything. Or, so she's very small. She's carrying this gigantic gun. So we're sitting in this little platform all day, and these brown bears are coming through. And these things are, you know, you're talking about the 800,000-pound bears, not like the little black bears you see other places and stuff. Um, and so they would come in, and they would feed on salmon, and they'd leave. We didn't see a whole lot of people or anything like that. And, and so we're kind of hanging out. And I thought to myself, I brought my, my fishing pole. I really like fly fishing. 
Um, and while the salmon that come in through there, they've already, they've already spawned their way up towards this lake. Um, and when the salmon get into fresh water, they're saltwater fish, um, and it actually kind of starts to like pull apart like the flesh on them, like the meat and stuff gets really kind of mealy and it's, it's, it's not good eating. When bears, you see those iconic pictures of like bears catching fish, they actually only eat like the innards, the, like the livers and stuff like that and they just, they throw the rest away because it's just, it's not worth anything. So fishing wise, what you do is you go for things like trout and stuff like that, like cutthroat trout, rainbow trout that feed on these salmon eggs. So the salmon eggs drop down, the trout kind of come in along the bottom, and the trout get huge cutthroats, all sorts of stuff. They're gorgeous, and they're great eating. So my thought was, at the end of the day, after we'd watched uh, the bears all day, we were going to have to kayak back to our little island. I thought to myself, like, I'll bring my fishing pole this time, and I'll catch us dinner. Because we've basically been eating, like, ramen and stuff, because you're camping out in the middle of nowhere. Um, so this is literally, like, nowhere. I mean, like, like it was about a 35-minute float plane ride for me from Juneau. Um, and you see nothing along the way. So th this is like literally just, 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 there's no help. There's no nothing. There's like, there's, there isn't like another person for like a hundred miles. Um, so that like in Alaska, we call that right around the corner. So we're, I, I, I'm basically like, you know what? These bears have kind of, they seem like in the evening, they kind of take off. And, um, I, so right at the end of our little shift, I'm like, I'm going to go down and catch us some fish. So I get my, my fly rod out. I don't, I don't have my waders or anything like that. I just have my boots. Um, so there's this little rock outcropping, kind of like, like Will's, like, like it's, it's exactly what I pictured was this, like, rock in the middle of the stream. And so I go out there, and I'm like, well, I'll stand on the rock. That'll be nice and easy. I'll stay dry, and, and we'll catch something. So uh, my friend Cheryl's sitting in the little tree fort with her big gun, and I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm assuming she's going to tell me if something comes out of the woods or anything like that. It's kind of her job. And so I'm fishing, and it's like, you know, it's Alaska, and I'm fly fishing, and I'm like, I'm not going to say, like, I felt like like Brad Pitt from A River Runs Through It. I, I, I was Brad Pitt from The River Runs Through It. Like, it's gorgeous. The sun is setting. It's like, I mean, like, you could hear the, like, I could hear the music, even though there was no music. Um, and I'm fishing, and I'm kind of getting some bites, but not, nothing's really happening. And all of a sudden, um, this little otter comes up, and it's like this big pool, and it kind of comes up on the edge of the rock. Now, I, I heard the awe. Um, when you think of otters, you think of sea otters. They're furry. They look like Wilford Brimley. They sit on their backs and they like they scratch each other and they're like they play with stuff and they're super cute, right? So this is a river otter, and I don't know if you've ever seen a river otter before, but they're they're weasels. They're nasty. They're weasels. They have big teeth. They look like um, I don't know, like fisher cats or something like that around here. They're nasty. They're nasty. They're weasels. I don't know how else to explain it. There's no rabies in Alaska or anything like that, but these things have it. Like they're just they're just that. Like they're gross, and they're whatever. And so this thing comes up and he's kind of like looking at me and he's got his teeth out and he's kind of like and he's kind of like looking at me and I'm like and I'm kind of still fishing and I'm kind of like that's weird. Um, and then I'm fishing and then all of a sudden I look over and there's another one. And he's, snar he's, like, he's snarling, he's got his teeth out, and then this one's getting kind of revved up too. And I'm like, this is weird. Um, and so I just keep fishing, and I'm kind of like, now I'm starting to kind of reel stuff in, and I'm like, I maybe don't want to stay on this rock anymore. And then I look, and there's another one. And now they're smacking tails, and they're, they're hissing, and they're wheezing at me, and they got the teeth, and they're nasty. They're nasty. They're not, I, like, I want them to be the fuzzy ones. I want them to be like... Like, you know, like just sitting there playing whatever in the, in the, in the surf on like, you know, like in California or something. But they're not. They're weasels. Um, and all of a sudden, there's another one. And I'm like, what the 
hell is going on here? And now, so they're all kind of like, they're, they're getting really, and they're, they're like slapping their tails and they're looking at me. And I'm like, I don't have any fish. I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to fish. I'm trying to catch stuff. You're not helping now. And so all of a sudden they start swimming around. They start milling around and they're, they're chomping their teeth and they're smacking their tails. And I'm like, I am like, I've had all these adventures in Alaska. I've seen, you know, like I've had bears come right up to me. I've been, you know, like I've fallen off of mountains. I've had all these things where I've almost died like several times, but like with like, like cool experiences, right? Like you're rock climbing in Alaska and you fall and you die. Well, that's, I mean, it's not good, but it's, but it's like, it's better than being eaten by weasels, right? And so I'm like, I'm like, there's, there's weasels everywhere and they're going nuts and they're going crazy. And all of a sudden they start swimming and they start swimming away from me kind of on the sides. And then they all turn back and they're coming at me and they get the teeth and they're, and they're smashing their tails and they're going nuts and they come right at me, right at the rock. And then they all like two or three of them get fish and then they kind of just go away. And I hear this like snarl, like this like, like thing that like almost like someone like can't breathe or something like that. And like there's this like weird sound and I'm like, oh great. Now I, like, I'm distracted by the weasels and now this like huge brown bear is gonna come out of the woods and get me. And it's kind of like this, like someone almost like trying to like catch their breath kind of sound. I don't know how to, I don't know how to do it exactly. But I look up and it's my friend Cheryl is sitting in the tree fort, just laughing so hard <laughs> that she can't physically catch her breath. <laughs> And she's in the middle of the woods all by herself with this big gun watching this jackass trying to catch a fish and basically like horrified by a handful of weasels staring at him. And like, I, you know, I always think about like kind of like this beauty and fierceness of nature. And like literally it's like right there in the otter family. Thank you. Okay, final story, Steve Salag. I've heard that uh, Grand Canyon story and I am in the middle of reading this book that my daughter bought, which was everyone who's died at Grand Canyon. <laughs> and it's phenomenal. And we're worried about a few sharks here. I mean, it's a hole in the ground. You just watch out. But anyway, I digress. I, I'm from Long Island. I went to a college called Hofstra University. And so uh, this was 1970, 1971. And it was spring. I was a music major uninterested in music majoring, more interested in girls. <laughs> but I could play the piano, and I was not very tall, so I thought perhaps playing the piano would be a, an interest. Well, anyway, finding a place to play the piano, you know what would be normal if I had a guitar? You know, you could at least move that around. So having pianos was like, where were you going to find a place where you're going to find a piano and girls? It just happened that they had a, 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 I think it was called the New School, and it was a three-year program which had a library. They called it a library. They had no books there. But they did have a piano, and it was just a hangout place. Anyway, so it was spring, and it just happened to be one of the most like, beautiful spring days it's 
glorious light, beautiful air, every window is open wide, you know, you're just like. And so I'm sitting at this piano, and in walks a beautiful girl. The room is empty. It's a, it's a large room, and I'm just sitting at the piano, noodling, noodling around because I... And uh, so the girl walks over to the window, and she sits there by the window. <clears throat> and I'm going, wow, I, I really need to find a way to impress this person with my incredible talent. And I'm just thinking... I'm thinking so hard, I need to play something inspired. And I'm, you know, noodling around. And so eventually, my brain takes my fingers to a particular song. And I start playing, you know, picking it out because I don't really know what the song is, but I pick it out one note at a time. And as soon as I realize it, the girl realizes it too. I am playing, how much is that doggy in the window? <laughs> and she stands up and storms out of the room. And I'm like, you're an idiot. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian with theme music and editing by Jay Hagenbuckle. Find your next opportunity to join us in person by following us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to this podcast for more stories. Remember, tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live. Bite it live.